Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the just-released new book, The Only Witness. It is a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Mike Piechik. He is a syndonologist since 2017, and he has spoken widely about the Shroud. So let me tell you a little bit more about Mike. He is a converted businessman. Uh, he's met and been influenced by Barry Schwartz and Father Spitzer and many others. He's been a self-educated Shroud scholar and has presented on the Shroud numerous times. And he believes the man in the Shroud represents the torment and suffering that Jesus endured for us. Everyone has to make his or her, his or her own faith conclusion. And he states in his conclusion of his presentations, that his goal was not to convince the audience the man in the shroud is Jesus, but that they come away with a deeper awareness of Jesus suffering for them. No question that Jesus suffered for us. Uh, what's reflected in those four Gospels is just uh, incredible, and what's reflected from those four Gospels onto the shroud is just uh, incredible. So, Mike, thank you and uh, welcome. Well, thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, I just got maybe one minor correction. I don't know that I'm a scholar. I mean, I'm self-taught. Uh, I've looked into the shroud and I've studied it. Uh, I still tell people, as, as often as I've done presentations, that I still consider myself a novice. Uh, and I haven't gone through any training, per se, or seminars. It's just a lot of work that I've done and investigation. But uh, I think I'm still short of a scholar. But I, I think I'm a pretty good novice. Well, I, I think you're probably a full-blown scholar, given that if we if we kind of shade the definition to be somebody that's learning, then uh, and constantly learning, then uh, we're both scholars. Because I I agree with you, the shroud is so complex, and there is so much to understand that uh, that I think there's nobody. Uh, there's maybe a couple of people, but there's really very very few that really understand it to, you know, maybe even 95, 99%. I mean, I learn something every day. It's, it's just a fascinating topic. Well, hopefully maybe you invite me down to your parish, your church, and I, one day I can give a presentation to uh, your congregation. Would love to, that'd be fantastic. Uh, right. So thank you. So tell us uh, how you uh, uh, got involved in the Shroud. What is your backstory on the Shroud of Turin? Well, um, uh... My previous work, I am retired now. I've been retired for a couple of years. But uh, in 2000, in the range 2018, as I, my territory was Virginia and West Virginia. So I did a lot of traveling by car. I leave on the road by Monday, come back home Thursdays or Fridays. A lot of hotel time, a lot of travel time. But I just had the urge to look up the Shroud of Turin in my off time. So I finish the day at work, go back to the hotel, and I turn on the computer and I started just dibbling into it, looking at it and reading about it. And I just got more excited about it. It's like my, my interest was self-generated. And I just had a lot of time on the road hotels to uh, go into the computer and look at it. Uh, as I found out that the two main emphasis of the shroud that just got to me are the two main aspects. One is the scientific aspects. That is the light brown image is a photo negative. So when you take a picture of it, you get an image of a man. 
And then that image of the man, when you put it onto, under a VP8 image analyzer, you get a correct 3D image. So that's the scientist, scientific aspect. And I, I was thinking, wow, I mean, how, how does that happen? And to date, scientists have no explanation. And here we are in the 21st century. The second part is the black and white images of the man that represent a man that was crucified, scourged, uh, crown of thorns. And um, it's just very detailing that that is an example, a 100% matching of what Jesus went through. And my faith and belief in the Lord just draw me more to find out more about this, the truth about it, or to understand it, so I can draw closer to the Lord. And I just kept uh, learning more. I've read five books on the Shroud, different authors. Uh, I went to a, a presentation by Barry Schwartz, late 2018. My wife and I went up in Northern Virginia. From that presentation, I was able to hook up with him afterwards, and we have maintained a great relationship over the years. I've become very good friends with him. I won't say best friend, but just I email, email him every month. We communicate. He's called me a couple of times. So that is just that over the years of getting information and all of it's been self-driven, I felt a desire to give a presentation. So I reached out to Barry Schwartz at shroud.com and he, he gave me the approved slides. I formatted my own uh, presentation and uh, that's really maybe the sum of how, how I got into it. Yeah. And Barry is, uh, he is definitely one of the best champions for the shroud and he's done so much for it. And, and uh, I met him out in Houston and what a nice guy. And he gave such a, uh, when I met him, he was speaking and presenting on the shroud and he gave such an entertaining speech on, on it and on what he did at the, uh, during Sturp and everything. It's uh, pretty fascinating. Yeah, a phenomenal man. Phenomenal man. I have a great appreciation for him. He is, he is the number one Shroudy. So uh, he's the main guy. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. He definitely is. And, uh, and it's so funny too. He, he's a, uh, he was, he's Jewish or maybe I, I think he claims to still be Jewish, but I think he also uh, to bite to maybe 99.9% .9 believes that the shroud is the authentic burial cloth of Jesus Christ. So I don't know exactly how he reconciles the two, but uh, it's, uh, it's always good to get his input and, and, uh, and, and hear him speak. Yeah. He says he's not a Christian. He's still Jewish. Uh, he knows that maybe that disappoints Christians and they're praying for him. <laughs> I don't think he needs to be prayed for. Uh, I think he's found his route to heaven, uh, but he does believe that it is the burial cloth of Jesus. He just doesn't know whether or not Jesus is the son of God per se, as I understand it, but still it doesn't matter. He's, he's professing a risen Christ. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, and I like, you know, the way you talked about, you know, Jesus and everything. I just gave a sermon and uh, this last weekend and, and, and I, I just love the way the old Testament with Isaiah uh, and, you know, and where he's, you know, he talks about pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And uh, it, it ties into so much of what your message was and, and how you then leave your presentations with in terms of, you know, at the conclusion, they know that Jesus died and suffered for us so we could be saved. And what more, you know, beautiful of a statement could anybody make? So I appreciate what you're talking about there.
Yeah, it's it's a culmination. I tell people also in the closing remark, it's a culmination of God's love for us that He put His Son up to go through that. I mean, it's like wow. Yeah, yeah, and and it is really a wow. And when um, you know, when you look at the shroud uh, itself, I mean, on the one hand, it's very contemplative when you're just looking at it and seeing that image and understanding how much love he had for us but then of course the the suffering that he had with the the bruises the piercing the uh the cap of thorns and the the whipping and the everything else that he went through it's just uh it's it's incredible it is that is the more i i keep every time i do a presentation i am just drawn deeper and deeper into what it means so yeah yeah, yeah, same here, same here. So you have now also uh, written two books. Uh, tell us about both of them. Well, in 2015 range, I had family members who decided to announce that they're atheists. And uh, it was quite shocking for my wife and I. It's like, well, how can this be? And uh, I won't go into details of the, the family members. Regardless, it's still very, very close people. And it sort of set us back like a punch in the stomach. And there was also the challenges as to uh, why I believe in what I believe and challenges to my faith uh, that was being put at me. So I had to uh, sit down and think through the process of why do I believe what I believe? And the first book uh, is one plus one equals God. And that was a, a summary of first of all, two parts. One is the why I believe in the scientific aspects that there is a creator and a creator who formed us and formed this universe. And then the second part would be my belief in Jesus and that uh, all the documentation of uh, that he existed, first of all, on his existence, that, that they cannot deny that the other side cannot deny that Jesus existed. He existed. And then, then the research of all the spiritual aspects of Jesus and his apostles. So it was a confirmation of maybe what I believe. Uh, in that first part as well, I came away with something very powerful that came to my mind in, in that uh, one plus one equals God. And that is the creation of this universe. That there was a, There's an evolution, evolutionary process. And evolution is a process used by God in time. Evolution does not have a mind. Evolution doesn't have wisdom. It doesn't have a spirit. It doesn't have a heart. It doesn't have any understanding. It's nothing more but a process used by God uh, in, our, in our development. The second book was uh, in, written in 2017. And that was Jesus is the way, the truth and life. Atheism is lost, lying, death. So that book is a little bit more going after the atheist position. It's also an extension of my beliefs of the first book, but it represents two choices that we have. The choice of that Jesus is the way, truth, and life. You just simply believe in him. You do your best, or you ignore Jesus and deny him. And taking Jesus into your heart is a way to heaven. Ignoring Jesus and turning your back on him is a way of eternal uh, condemnation. Uh, I've, drawn, I've drawn some criticism from my atheist friends and family members because in there, in the second book, I state that if you are against God, you are on the side of Satan. Now, that does not mean they're evil people. I mean, atheists can be good people. Or, I mean, there are good people out there. But 
if you turn your back on God, you have total denial of, of him, then you are on the side of Satan and he and he's cheering you on. I think as I go back, I look at these two books I've written, I am sometimes awfully surprised by what I've written. And I have to give credit to Holy Spirit because I open up these books and I read these chapters and I say, did I really write that? The, the, the continuity of the topic, what it means, what I'm trying to get across. Um, I've also, I'm in the process of making notes on a couple more books. I won't go into that right now, but I've got some other thoughts I think I would like to uh, express. But uh, I give credit to the Holy Spirit for his guidance. I do not take any credit for any of this, any of the writings that I've done. So, yeah. And I, I, I as a matter of fact, I mentioned I uh, did a, did our, our sermon in our church uh, for our church this Sunday. And, and I talked about, you know, what God or the Holy Spirit did for me to get me to write the book. And uh, it was really 20 years ago that I got that. I called it a nudge. He gave me a nudge, you know, he, he, and uh, and it was that nudge that actually led me to write the book. And then to your point as well, um, the my brother, when he uh, read the final version of it, he picked out about 10 different quotes out of it. And I was amazed. I said, oh, I, I wrote that. Did I write that? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I said I said to myself no 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 I I may have put it in paper or I may have been it may have been my fingers but it was uh, uh, it was God that really was the inspiration and He was nudging me the whole way with different words and inspiring me and uh, so I I definitely see exactly what your point is there. Well, I think what's going to be great is upon our passing we've got something we've left behind that will always be there. Besides, I mean, maybe some memories, but we got more than memories and not that I'm taking credit for it, but it's just, I think it's a beautiful thing that we've honored the Lord about what we're trying to do. And I, I uh, and I hope to continue that in my, in my efforts of public speaking. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. Uh, and definitely, and, and we'll talk about hopefully where we can uh, have our readers uh, find your book and 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 be able to also inspire them with uh, with your writing. So uh, so let's go back now to uh, Jesus and uh, and the and the uh, crucifixion and the shroud. Tell us uh, some of the ways that he suffered. Tell us what you uh, what you see as uh, as the things that he suffered for us. Well, I don't think most people understand the total torment that Jesus went through. Uh, when he, when he was scourged, uh, his body was shredded into basically almost hamburger. Uh, the scientists had determined on the front, on the backside, he had about 240 wounds from the scourging of the Roman flagrum, 240. The frontal side, he had about 120. And if they recall in the Bible, when they gave him the crucifix, or the, the beam to carry, he couldn't carry. He was falling down, and they had to get Simon, some Syrian who came in from the fields, to help him because they thought he was not going to make it. So Jesus, upon his uh, crucifixion, uh, he was basically maybe half dead already. So his his he had lost a lot of blood. He was under a lot of pain, a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, torment. And then when you look at or think through the nailing of the cross to the, to the wrist, his uh, nail going through his feet, crushing his feet bones, uh, hanging up there on the cross. Uh, now, also, people may not realize this, but he was crucified naked. They, they did not give him any special consideration. 
he was scourged naked because the, the, if you look at the uh, the images of the uh, black and white images, he's got scourge marks all over his buttocks, which means that he he was stretched out and he was scourged from from his shoulders all the way down to his feet with nothing on him. Uh, so the totality of of his torment was just uh, horrible. And the fact that he took that upon himself for our sins is just a, uh, you just can't, you can't take it in. So therefore, when I, every, every presentation that I go through and I talk from, from his head down to his feet and I identify that, um, his face was, was, was uh, disfigured. Both eyes were swollen. His uh, right eye was closed, was closed. His right eyelid was torn. Uh, his nose was out of line. So his cartilage in his nose was broken from being punched. His facial beard was pulled out. All that just on his face. Uh, so, and it talked about where uh, the, uh, the that most of that was done by probably the Pharisee guards when they had him. And they just took it out on him uh, when they had a chance. When he uh, said, you'll see me sitting at the right hand of the father. And they said, okay, you referred to blasphemy. And then they went ahead and began to... Uh, uh, beat up on his face so it's just uh it's hard to it's hard to uh put in words what he did for us and just talking about the images reflects upon i think his love for us for him to do that for us yeah i i and i i think you're right and you know he uh he prayed before the crucifixion in the garden of gethsemane for uh, you know, two or three big sets of prayers went back to the, the, his disciples and they were falling asleep. And, and then he, uh, you know, he reprimanded them for that. And he was, uh, he was praying so hard that he's, that blood is coming out of his face as sweat. And, and if he didn't want to do that for us, he could have ran off. He right. could have run off. He could have run off at that point and uh and and said no i'm not going to do that but he decided consciously he and god and through his prayers he says no 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 it is my sacrifice that he's going to do for us yes right yeah and then um to your point as well the uh how brutal uh you know the pharisee guards or the temple guards whatever and then of course the roman guards and then their their whipping of him and and what have you and then the fact that normally uh people that are crucified actually can live a couple of days they uh, they don't die that quickly and uh, and he was dead within a handful of hours yeah mark and, uh, and mark uh he states that jesus was uh, started the, uh, the crucifixion at uh the third hour which was nine o'clock and then it was at the sixth hour 3 p.m uh, where he died. So it doesn't mean exactly nine o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the afternoon. But during that time frame of those hours, uh, he only spoke 57 words. And uh, I go back and I look at that. I mean, first it was as you're nailing him, he says, Father, forgive them. They, uh, they do not what, they, what they're doing. I, I, I was contemplating on that. I think before Jesus asked the fathers to forgive them, he had to forgive us. He had to first acknowledge in his heart that I forgive you. And then he asking the father, father, don't take anything on him, forgive them. The, the, the next major phrase that he talks about was, is very, for me, compelling. And I don't know if people really take time to think about his words, but 
he had time to have closure with his mother. Now, Mary was at the foot of the cross, and that was she was probably only maybe 10 feet from him. It was not like the cross was way high up in the air. But him looking down at her and his disfigured face and his body, and she's looking at him, what a, I mean, it's, what a terrible way. But his closure with her saying goodbye is, woman, here is your son. And to John, son, here is your mother. It is what a because a year ago I had a chance to say goodbye to my mother, but certainly it was so easy. She's at the bed and she knows she's dying, and we know she's dying. And I love you, you love me, and, and what a way for Jesus. And I think also his last moments of life, he didn't have much time left in him, but yet he still saved a prisoner. A prisoner re went over to him, and here Jesus, he's going in and out of consciousness. Uh, on the cross, but yet somebody asked him, and the prisoner's probably not doing very well, and he says, Jesus, you know, remember me, and Jesus says, you will, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's just the depth of him continuing to do what he does for us. So these kinds of analysis, I mean, I, I, I think about it, I meditate on it, I think, I just think about this whole, the pieces, step by step, what occurred. Now, maybe I'm wrong about what I'm saying. I don't know, but I think I'm pretty close to what, what really happened as far as the thinking in the process. Yeah, and I like your uh, point of uh, bringing out each of those sets of things that he talked about, and especially with his mother, and uh, and then asking John more or less to take care of his mother because he's no longer there. I, uh, uh, you know, you don't pick up on on that as much as you should, and I, I really appreciate you pointing that out. Yeah, it's uh, it's powerful. Everything because it was it was fifty seven words. It could be fifty six depending upon what Bible you have. Mm -hmm. And I tell people my presentation, which is about fifty minutes, I have six thousand five hundred words in my presentation I give to the audience. And here Jesus is nailed to his cross <laughs> probably just less than six hours and he speaks 57 words and it's just uh powerful mm. yeah it really is it really is so uh um so uh with that uh, uh what do you see as like for you you uh I, whether they're shroud books or whether they're otherwise but what are like for you what are the, some of the best books that really stand out for you well I was able to read, I, I note in my books, the number of books I read, my first book, I read up to 64 books. The second book compiled up to 200. Because of my days of traveling, I was able to do a lot of audio books and listen to them many times, repeat them over. So it was easy to put a couple of books on the road and, and go through them and listen to them. Uh, in that compilation was probably uh, 25 or 30 books on, by, written by atheists. So I understand their position and their, their thinking. And the rest of the books had to be with Christian authors and believers. Uh, but my first choice would probably be the book called God is Not Dead by Rice Brooks. And this is an interesting storyline because and this was back in the 2015 uh, when, when the announcement was made by family members. I had to think, well, how do I get started? How do I approach my offense or, or defense regarding their challenges? And where do I begin to say what I believe. So in 2015, Pam and I, we happened to be in England. I'd gone through Heathrow Airport and I was being going security and I was being double checked. And as I was, my luggage being double checked, a man was standing next to me and his briefcase was open. 
And in his briefcase was a couple of books and the title was God is not dead. And I saw, well, this is a cap, a Christian person. I asked him, I said, is the book any good? And he said, yes, the book is excellent. As a matter of fact, I'm the author, Rice Brooks. <laughs> so he gave me a copy of his book and we talked for a couple of minutes. He gave me some guidelines, how I ought to approach myself in my beliefs and how I move forward with, because he was off to have a debate with atheists at the university. So I read that book probably four or five times, and it gave me a good basis how to how to start my writings. The second one would be Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was an atheist attorney who was, his wife was Christian, and he was going to outprove that there was Jesus is false. And anyway, the end result was he came away saying, wow, Jesus is real. And he committed his life to the Lord. His book is powerful on the, on the aspect of why the case for Jesus. And that was, that was a powerful book. I used his, his information on various parts in my first book. The second would be is, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. They do a phenomenal job breaking down the atheist beliefs and why they're so short on, on any facts. Uh, they, they do a great job. And I, I loved it. Um, the fourth would be uh, God's Double Agent by Bob Fu. Bob Fu was a, a Chinese person who came to the Lord. And now also I want to highlight that people in the free world, Christians, they fail to understand the torment. There are so many Christians out there around the world who are suffering because the government persecutes them. Bob Fu in China was a, a professor, of G, a, a, a Christian believer, and he would have uh, prayer meetings. And But the Chinese government found out about him and went after him. And the storyline about how he was able to get through their, their torment, their, uh, they called him in and, and uh, put him in prison, what he had to do to go through that life. And it was just, it was, uh, again, I appreciate it. That, and, I, and this is another, just a side note, is that because of my understanding what Christians who are being persecuted every day in my prayers in the morning, I lift up to the Lord that he would send angels to the Christians around the world who are being tormented. I read a few other books by uh, uh, people who were uh, uh, Muslims or Islams, and they, they converted to uh, Christianity and the torment they went through. But I picked up Bafu because it was just a reminder mm. of what's going out there in the world. And he he has, this, he has a special ministry on right now. And then the fifth one would be um, The Persecutor by Sergei Kurdikov. Uh, the Persecuted by Sergei Kortikov. I read this book in 1975. This book stayed with me all these years because what's important of it, and this was at before I, I am to the phase of my beliefs and my strength in the Lord. Sergei was a, a communist, a uh, atheist in Russia back in the Cold War. His role and responsibility was to go out and find Christians and believers who had prayer meetings, who had church services. Him and his henchmen would go out and look for them, and they would just punish them. Mm -hmm. And some people lost their lives by their the, the beatings and the brutality. Now, what's interesting, this is, this is information coming from a person who persecuted Christians. So one day, he, he and his henchmen went to this prayer meeting. They got word of a prayer meeting going on at this home with these elderly people. He went in. They went in. They started pummeling him and hitting him. And he had uh, uh, 
had his own a beating stick, got this woman out of the corner, and he was going to teach her, you don't pray, this is a communist country. He raised his club to hit her across the face, and she's out, God, forgive me, that's not what he's doing. As he comes down to hit her, somebody from behind grabbed his arm, full force, yanked him back. Now, Sergi's a big, strong guy, so he turns around to confront whoever pulled him back, and there's nobody there. <laughs> he had a spiritual, a spirit, a spiritual experience where the angel protected this lady by pulling him and yanking him back. He knew he was fighting against God. So, those are the five books I just sort of highlighted. There are so many other great books, mm. but uh, uh, well, your uh, last one certainly sounds like uh, Paul and his conversion. That's for sure. Yeah, and I have made comments about that. That. Uh, he knew he had he had to find an excuse to stop what he was doing, and he went and, and uh, uh, got on a different job and a different boat, and he uh, uh, escaped to uh, Canada. But regardless, it's just again the point being: this is a man who was an atheist persecuting Christians. It's not, usually, when a Christian tries to put together a story, it's nice, but this is this was powerful, mm. and it stayed with me ever since then. So. Yeah, and your your story is, I mean, we are so blessed to be sitting here and able to talk freely about religion. And I mean, we could talk politics or whatever, and having the freedom to, to be able to do so. And yet, when you go around the world, uh, and you, you know, you have then the, the, the communists in Russia, or now the modern day communists or dictators, dictatorship in, in China, um, I always got a, I used to spend a lot of time in China. And uh, if I was there over the weekend, I wanted to find a, a United Methodist Church. And I, I, I could never find one. And uh, I thought that they had them, but you couldn't, you know, they were blocked or whatever. And um, I never found one. I did. I was able to, though, go to uh, one or two Catholic churches, and they were still able to uh, to worship. Although the, the, the worship service was in Chinese, so I don't know exactly yeah. what they said, but nevertheless, I was able to go and, and, uh, and be part of that. So hopefully it was not the Chinese version of, the, of Christianity, but the Catholic version of Christianity. So uh, yeah, we are so blessed to, uh, to have the freedom to be able to, to pray and talk and speak on, on anything that we, you know, our heart desires, even whether we're the, an atheist or not. Right. Yep. Uh, yep. So uh, you said you also had uh, some super supernatural experiences. Tell us uh, a little bit about those. Well, a an experience. Um, I've had I've heard different things in my head, particularly when I was writing the books. I mean, prominent information just popped and yelled in my head. But this was a real supernatural experience that occurred to me in the nineteen early nineteen nineties. I think nineteen ninety two. I don't remember ninety two or ninety three. But regardless. Uh, that year. So at that time, I was a Little Caesars franchisee, and I would go to my office early in the morning. Uh, I would always be there most of the time, first one in the morning. I'd get there 7 o'clock, 7.15, everybody else be coming to 8, 8, 8 o'clock, 8.30 range. And uh, so I left home, and I would get on the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is simply, I go down the street and then I make a quick right. I'm, now, I'm on the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is a beautiful drive. It's about a seven mile drive. And it had pullouts. And the pullouts where you can pull over to your car maintenance or whatever. But um, I would pull over on a regular basis because we're surrounded by mountains, beautiful mountains here in Virginia. And I would just meditate. 
and uh, just thanking the Lord. I mean, life was good. I had a thriving business. At one time, we had 450 people in our company, uh, 33 restaurants we owned, and uh, it was not uncommon. I would just thank the Lord for a few minutes and get back on, pull out, and head to the office. Well, this one particular day, it's about 7 o'clock, 7.15 in the morning. Nobody's on there except a couple cars. I pull over, and the sun's coming up over the mountain. It's a beautiful day, and I'm I'm just thanking the Lord for what's happening and for uh, all the good things. So it's just me in the car by myself, and all of a sudden in the car, in a loud voice, not in my head, but a loud voice, it said, Michael, when the black van goes by, and comes back, you have to leave. Now, what's interesting is that it was a warning of what was going to happen and what I needed to do. I actually turned around like in the backseat, okay, I'm the only one in here in the car. Where is this coming from? So I'm just sitting there pondering what I just experienced. Maybe 45 seconds later, a minute later, at that time, it was probably a 1985 black Econo van with the, with the chrome uh, top luggage rack on top. It goes by. The back windows are covered up. I thought I think I only saw the driver. Could not see a second person. And the car, the black van goes by. And it's like, wow, it's got my attention. And uh, the road from that point, it's curvy. And uh, I'm sitting there and I just thinking it through. Well, about 45 seconds later, a minute later, apparently this van went down, turned around and came back. And as it came back, the approach, I only saw a headlight. Then I saw a headlight and a radiator. And I saw a headlight and a radiator and the other headlight. So he came back, crouching up, crouching up. And then when he could see me, I could see him. He went normal speed. I turned the car on. And as he pulled around the, the uh, uh, turnoff there, uh, I, I pulled out and I left. For years, I didn't talk about it. I think maybe short time after I shared it with Pam, I might have told my parents, but now who's going to believe me? I have nobody convinced. I have no proof. But this was an experience that I say it could have been, uh, the Lord could have been my angel speaking to me. Um, I take a responsibility for what I've heard. And, and I have to think about that. The Lord blessed me with, with additional experience that it's just it's a uh, phenomenal and i have to, i have to be careful that i don't let that experience uh not weigh me down but i i don't take i keep the importance of what happened because that was that was uh it was a phenomenal experience not all my family members believe it uh been told you're delusional it didn't happen you're changing your story and I and, and but that's that's exactly what happened, and I'm very thankful for uh, for that experience. Yeah, and thank you, thank you for sharing it. Definitely, uh, a very interesting uh, to hear a voice like that, or you know, to your your point about the story with the the Russian and having that hand pulled back. Uh, you know, God or the Holy Spirit is is definitely there, telling us and giving us giving you know for your books as well giving you a nudge for or a, or even more than a nudge but inspiring you and inspiring me to to do what we've done as well it's uh, it's pretty phenomenal so thank you for sharing that on occasion after my presentations if i feel it's the right time i'll share that with the audience uh, as a little secondary uh, information and i'll get people to come up to me and say thank you because i had something maybe not like that but uh and then we start sharing some information mm -hmm. back and forth 
Mm. Uh, I think people forget. I mean, we have all kinds of experience. It doesn't have to be as strong as that. It's things we see our protection of our daily lives. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's something happens to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I definitely think you're right. So, uh, well, let's get back to, uh, the shroud. And, uh, so what do you think is, uh, like the most interesting thing on the shroud? What is, what is it that really captures your imagination? Well, let me try, I guess, explain the most interesting about thing about the shroud is the fact that it has not, here we are in the 21st century. It's believed to be 2000 years old and it has not been duplicated. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, uh, on, the, on, the, on the computer websites that, this, that try and disprove the shroud and they, they have little different things, but until they can come up with a light brown image that lays only on top of the surface of the cloth, it's a photo negative, it produces an image of a man and that image of the man is a 3D. That compilation of those scientific things, uh, that's, that is what I think is the most prominent and the crux of the, the matter or the material of the shroud is that it's not duplicated. Uh, I think Paolo de, de Lazaro, a physical chemist, and these guys with these brilliant minds, he tried to create the image on the cloth. He got something on there that was using all... Uh, uh, powerful eczemer uh, light rays or whatever. Mm -hmm. Eczemer laser. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, here we are in the 21st century. If we can't create, how could a medieval person or even go further back? How could they have done it? <laughs> so it's, it's the aspect guy that uh, is not duplicated today. And I don't think it's ever going to be duplicated because I believe it is, but uh burial cloth, but regardless, it's not, here we are 21st century and it's not duplicated. So that is, that's what is to me the uh, you know we got the scientific aspect we got the picture of the man it's a fact that is not duplicated today so yeah yeah and I I think you're um, I I think I think you're right I mean that that and I and I don't you know you wonder on the one hand okay so this image is supposedly made by God that's kind of what I believe that's what you believe and um, so how would you know, is it the is it the is it the pride and the ego of man that we can think that we can duplicate something that that God did? Or I mean, I think we could probably technically reproduce how the image was made and and what have you. But I don't think we will ever ever because it's a, a godly image or a God made image. I don't think we're ever going to be able to make it exactly the way that it was actually made will be it's kind of like being able to make a xerox you know you, you can you can take you can take a piece of you know some kind of a document with writing on it and you can make a copy and it looks almost exactly the same but to actually get it to reproduce everything that's in that image and i just i did i just don't uh i just don't see that the that that man will be, will be able to do that well first uh, it's going to be impossible because uh first of all the blood stains around the cloth first so as the cloth went on the person, blood came onto the cloth because the stains, the blood stains are there first, and then the light brown image. Now, Paul de Zero, from his assumption that there was some energy. So the assumption is that the body of that person, I want to say body of Jesus, body, but that person had a burst of energy. That also correlates to the transfiguration when Jesus took the three apostles, Peter, uh, James, and John, and Jesus' body 
had a transfiguration where his his face shone as bright as the sun, and his clothes were bleached white. So there was a shine. A, there was a, a moment there where he he shined, and so I believe I believe the body had his had a burst of energy. We're made of atoms, and I think that's I think that's the layman's terms of what happened. So uh, well, so beginning to be to match it up, you could have a you mm. could to your point you could have a picture of a light brown, but you got to have all the other aspects. The blood on the cloth first. The blood is A B. Uh, matching it up on a figure of a man, creating an image, creating a 3D. Now, just one of the point about the shroud, it was the 3D image that caught the interest of the scientists. It wasn't the picture of the man, per se. It caused, that caused interest. But when the 3D image came out, scientists were saying, how could this be? It is the only one in the world that has a, a picture of a man that is a 3D image. There's mm. none other in the world. And it's, how, how does this happen? But it is a God thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Uh, it's fascinating, and um, and how uh, you know we as scientists and and the kind of the royal we as scientists and trying to just understand that image and 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 what have you is fascinating. But to actually reproduce it exactly and have somehow that energy be dispersed from this body is uh, is is pretty pretty interesting and. Yep. And uh, so, uh, so what do you see as the the next big thing for the shroud? Well, uh, again, I'm just a novice in the aspect. I I don't think they're going to have any other testing for date testing. I think they've done uh, it's it's in storage and gases. I understand a few years back they did a vacuuming on the backside, which was a mistake. Uh, I think people it's just gonna, people are have to go on faith. And they're going to show. I think the next presentation is uh, 2025, when they're going to show the real, the real uh, shroud uh, for for a public viewing. Uh, I think it's going to be up to people on their own to look into it and make their own uh, decision. But uh, I think it's it's just going to be status quo as we move forward. Yeah, yeah. I I, I hate to say it. I think uh, I think that's right. As as much as I'd want to see some more testing on it and non-destructive testing as much as i'd like to see that um i think it's going to be a, a ways off and it may be that uh i kind of liken it to the jews being in the desert for 40 years uh the church is putting the <laughs> the church is putting the scientists in the uh in the in the desert you know for 40 maybe plus years uh to be able to do some real uh another round of uh scientific testing so, uh, yeah, and hopefully it will be uh, seen and exhibited in 2025. I'm ready to buy my ticket over to, to yeah, Turin. Yeah, I would and, like to. I, we want to do that. We, we yeah. want to be able to do that. So Yeah, so uh, we'll have a little meeting over there and, <laughs> and, uh, and go from there. I'm looking forward to it. Well, uh, with that, uh, thank you uh, so much uh, for being uh, with me today on our podcast. And uh, for your books, uh, where can people find and uh, download and purchase your books? Uh, they're, at, uh, they're on Amazon. And I, I again, I, I wrote the books not for necessarily to make money or sell them, but more or less to profess my belief and to have that as an uh, instrument of my presentation of why I believe in what I believe. But the, if people would like to buy them, that would be great. Uh, I think one's eleven dollars, one's fourteen, or something like that. So they're not. A, like, I think the second book, "Jesus is the Way, Truth, and Life: Atheism is a Lost Lion Death." If somebody's got a family member, that could be a good book for them to uh, mm -hmm. give that person 
to challenge them on, on their uh, on their rationale for not believing in God. Yeah, yeah, excellent. So it's a one plus one equal God and uh, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And atheism, well, atheism is lost, lying, death. Fantastic. Thank you. So uh, they're available on Amazon. And um, and otherwise, uh, where can people uh, find you? Well, they can, uh, I guess, I don't have a problem with giving my email address. It's just mercymike at cox.net, M-E-R-C-Y-M-I-K-E, mercymike at cox.net. Fantastic. Well, thank you, uh, Mike, and thank you, uh, Mercy Mike. Really appreciate it. And uh, to the audience, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. And, and please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And if you like this one, please rate it with five, with five stars. Mike, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank today. you, Guy, very much for this opportunity and, and uh, allow me to profess my uh, love for the Lord. Absolutely. And me too. Thank you so much. Thank you, Guy. Bye-bye.